Welcome to the CRC Team Review, which contains the group segments from this week's Christopher Peter Review. Please enjoy. Welcome to the CRC Conversation on the Christopher Peter Review, where we discuss leading current events impacting our public policy and the happenings in our political system. Let us start with a story that will dominate the headlines for the next few weeks. This week former President Trump received his second indictment, but first federal indictment. The Republican frontrunner was formally charged with 37 felonies related to the classified document scandal that resulted in an FBI raid of his residence in Mar-a-Lago, Florida. The former president maintains strong support by a base that understands that he is a lightning rod for unfair criticism and politically biased attacks. But is there a point where his base and other Republican voters need to understand that this is a great level of baggage for a nominee to carry into a general election? This is a constant uncomfortable area to navigate because I believe all people, regardless of whether you are a Trump supporter or anti-Trumper, know and understand that there is a level of partisan bias and attacks on the former president. So there is reasonable doubt to the credibility of the charges. In legal matters, there is an important consideration of precedents that must be factored in. Because something may be technically against the law but precedent shows that law enforcement and the justice system do not view the infraction as something that should face prosecution or rise to the level of serious crime. In regard to the charges in New York, there are reports that the prosecution is taking a serious unprecedented approach in elevating incidents that are normally misdemeanors at best to the level of felony, which is inappropriate. The justice system is supposed to be blind and the prosecution should not be able to change their approach simply because of the name of their target and should not be able to retroactively change the statutes to fit the attack. At the same time, Republican voters should consider the judgment factor as President Trump does show a blatant disregard for sound decision-making. While one might believe he is being wrongly charged for actions that others have done and are not getting the same attention to or were spared due to politics, I think you have to consider whether this reflects on his ability to make sound decisions if he returns to the White House. Just like I said during Hillary Clinton's last run, I do not believe voters should simply choose someone because the candidate feels that they deserve the office. That candidate needs to make a case for why he or she can do better than the field. Right now, Trump is playing the victim card, while petulantly attacking fellow Republicans. He has yet to make a real argument for why he should be voted back in and what he will do if he returns to office. There really is no substantive argument for a Trump return to office when you consider that there are others in the Republican field that have a lot to offer without the controversial temperament and erratic behaviors. There is no denying that Trump was effective policy-wise for the most part. Especially compared to Biden, who is fledgling. But I think voters are not going to decide to put a candidate back in power simply because of voter regret from 2020 or because being sympathetic to the argument that he is constantly wronged there must be a valid new case for the office. I agree. There are many people out there who feel validated in their view that Biden was not fit for the office of the President of the United States. But there are plenty of people who also feel that Trump may not be the right person either. Ironically, if he would have won in 2020, the conversation would be concerning the end of Trump's political career rather than the potential return to office. If we take a moment to see the forest through the trees, we should see that Republicans have viable options outside of Trump. DeSantis is polling strong against potential Democrats. On the other hand, the pipeline for Democrats continues to be weak. Biden will win the nomination and it may be a coin toss if he can beat Trump. And he would struggle to win against DeSantis, if Trump supporters are not able to set aside their Trump loyalty. Republicans can help America turn the page with nominating a candidate that is able to deliver the results of Trump without the circus. Trump was an effective president for the most part. I think Americans want to be able to feel good about what is going on and who is leading at the same time. 
There is a need to turn the page on what is a troubling moment in our timeline. Joe Biden is dropping the ball in so many important policy arenas and this should be concerning for all Americans. While there is always the usual Democrats defending their Democrat politicians and Republicans supporting their Republican politicians, Biden is struggling to appease any group. I am not sure any side wanted to see the world deteriorating in separate factions and alliances with competing interests. Not sure either side wanted an economy so challenged that we have to hold out hope for any good news even if we are ignoring the broader context. I am not sure anyone really wants to see our president fall down steps numerous times or barely be able to perform functions that are expected of a person in their full capacity. Let alone the president of the United States. I always felt that age is just a number. That the record, performance, ideas, and proven judgment are of far more importance in judging the suitability of candidates for political office. I do not feel that strongly about that anymore. I do think health and ability are now reasonable considerations. The public performances of Joe Biden are quite troubling. From a person who has lived in areas close to his congressional districts, there is a clear difference in the Biden of the past with the current individual running the highest office in the land. I do think it is troubling to see our president shaking phantom hands and falling down frequently. If that is what is done in public, I have to wonder what is occurring behind the scenes. Because public events are usually very scripted and orchestrated. So what is it like behind the scenes? Setting aside his potential diminishing capacity. His record as president is not appealing. I never thought he had the proper judgment, record, or candidate platform to be elevated to the highest office in the land. And I think we see that America was right to look for other candidates in the past. We are grasping at straws to be positive. Sure the stock market has finally risen. Let's see if it sustains. There is a lot of volatility because there is a constant level of uncertainty and a general feeling like a cliff is coming. So we cannot obsess over one positive moment. The recent rally is probably due to the federal government avoiding the potential default by reaching an agreement days before the projected default date. Seemed like there really could have been a prolonged battle that led to the first impactful default in our history. So understandably investors would be relieved afterwards. There still seems to be some level of potential future strife. We hope to avoid a recession and just have stagnation, which is not something indicative of a desirable economy. I think we are trying to make lemonade out of lemons. But we need to acknowledge we should have never been in this situation in the first place. Moving on to the debt deal. Many people felt that the debate over the debt ceiling was not the proper forum for arguing for changing how we spend. The debt limit involves whether the federal government has the authority to increase the issuance of new liability to fund the annual federal deficits. A better forum would be the annual budget debate, where the actual spending levels are determined and when decisions can be made that will have real impact on the level of federal spending that occurs. At the same time, good debt management requires one to address the factors that caused you to reach your credit limit or you will continually be in need of credit limit increases. There is a time and place for everything. But sometimes the most uncomfortable of conversations must be had even in the most inopportune environments. To some degree, I agree that the debt ceiling and spending debate should be separated. But I do think that it is strategically important to have one event set up future events in the world of politics. In negotiations, you need points of leverage to actuate change. For instance, when you negotiate large purchases like a house or a new car, it is easier to do so when you are not in desperate need of either one. Because you may provide a point of leverage for the other party. If someone knows you need to sell your home or you need a new car to commute to your job, there are reasons for them to be more firm in their stance. While it may appear uncooperative, they maximize their outcomes if they know that you cannot walk away as easily. 
so I believe that the debt ceiling provided a natural point of leverage for Republicans to connect the need for increasing the nation's credit limit with the need to address spending. Politically savvy. Maybe not the most practical because there was a point where the leverage could turn if an actual default occurred. I understand that many fiscal conservatives are not happy with the deal because there was no real commitment to cut anything. Simply to reduce the trajectory of the growth in spend. In exchange for pushing any debt limit debate until after the presidential election. I do think there were some nice wins for the Republicans and Americans. Including the reducing and diverting funds intended to weaponize the Internal Revenue Service. I get the need to become more assertive in prosecuting tax cheats. But the IRS having new potentially armed agents is a little too far. Are we taking potential tax filing mistakes more seriously than murders and violent crimes when you consider enforcement? The issue of spending was never going to be resolved in the debt ceiling debate. Too little time and too much to do. We do need a broader discussion on our national debt, but it will need to be one that actually involves both spending and revenues, which will make both sides uncomfortable. Finally, a common theme in our presidential elections is the standing of America on the world stage, where Democratic candidates believe their candidates do a better job of protecting our reputations and Republicans counter that their candidates are stronger on the issues that impact Americans the most. We clearly have reason to question how seriously the world is taking our current leadership, when we see what appears to be blatant actions directly in the face of America. Not that long ago, Biden officials called out how assertively Chinese officials disregarded our diplomatic efforts. Now, we see that they are blatantly building a base in Cuba to what many believe will serve as a spy platform to monitor our communication and actions. There is a clear challenge of America's standing on the world stage and it seems like we are losing ground rather than leading the way. Is America leading from behind or simply falling behind? Progressives were uncomfortable with the America first foreign policy because they seemed to think it was too aggressive. Although, it kept our enemies in line and maintained world peace. Now, we see that our enemies really believe that they have a chance to challenge our standing and fill the void in areas where we pull back or lack clear engagement. It was clear that even our allies did not fully respect our views on the threat of Russia. After we recklessly pulled out of Afghanistan and left many of them to hold the bag as the Taliban took control quickly before they could evacuate, I could understand them being a little standoffish. We were not a great partner and clearly did not handle the event well. I am not sure we are really managing the situation well now, as we are still defaulting to foreign leaders who are spending our aid and using our weapons without even filling us in apparently. As our enemies see that we cannot coordinate well with our allies, cannot lead an effective response to threats, they may become more emboldened to pursue their own invasions, infringements, and other violations. Ironically, the Obama administration was praised for its policy shifts with Cuba, who is now providing land to our enemy, in the same fashion that it worked with the USSR. Our perceived weakness and indecision is changing the world for the worse. Our foreign policy is not working. Now, let us bring in the rest of the team for a broader discussion. The biggest story by far is the announced plan to merge between the PGA Tour, Live Golf, and the DP Tour with the Saudi Public Investment Fund becoming a premier sponsor of the new combined entity. There is also talk of determining a path for reincorporating players who defected to Live Golf back into the fold as well as considering how to incorporate Team Golf into the PGA model. The formation of Live Golf challenged the status quo of organized golf as we knew it. The league, Funded by the Saudi Public Investment Fund, operated tournaments that offered larger purses than what the typical PGA player received and guaranteed players would be seen on the weekends. We are used to seeing poor performers sent packing after their Friday round concludes. Initially, I am not sure how many people thought Live Golf would make a dent in the market. 
but it did when many notable golfers and past major champions decided to defect, accepting generous contracts and incentives from an organization that claimed it did not generate any revenues in the past two years. In fact Live Golf was reported to have to pay for its own television deal, where they experienced low television ratings by their own release data. The PGA counter-argument to Live Golf was offering bigger purses in some events and framing the competing league as being funded by blood money. It also banned any defector for life. The battle resulted in antitrust lawsuits from players in each league, a pending federal investigation by the Department of Justice, and tension between player factions. Especially now that an active live player won a major event. PGA loyalists now feel slighted with the turnabout. How can an organization claim a competitor is funded with blood money and then merge in a manner where they too will accept the same funding source that they claim was blood money? What is my perspective on this? I think the merger will be good for golf in the long run. I am generally a supporter of competition. But I think in sports we want to see the best players compete against each other. Not sure having the sport's great players split between two leagues was good for the long-term viability of the sport. From a competition standpoint, the merger is a good idea. We cannot ignore the controversial aspect about the funding of the league. There are many sports pundits who want to lecture society on moral inconsistencies. I heard the argument that Americans do not have any problems with iPhones being made in China by an enemy nation, buying Saudi energy, or trading with violators of human rights, but we have a problem with a golf league being funded by the public investment fund that is run by a top trading partner. There is a bit of difference here. If you are buying an iPhone, you are paying Apple, an American-based company, who determined its best economic interest is to have a supplier based in the nation of our current diplomatic and economic rival. Nike, also is an American company, doing the same. Live Golf is funded by an investment fund directly managed by people hand-picked by the Saudi leaders. So I cannot fault people for being more upset about this. Because there is a difference between a supplier being located in a nation and an investor being the actual nation. Now, the PGA is allowing funds from that national government to fund its operations in the same manner that it previously found objectionable. There is a difference, despite there being some similarities. Resolving the legal disputes is a win but not sure if the regulatory agencies that need to approve this merger will back off their position of antitrust. If they thought the PGA response harmed competition, a merger must be viewed as a greater harm. But I think the merger will be good for golf in the long run. There needs to be a real consideration of how to bring back golfers into the organization they left, who have players who do not appear ready to welcome them back with open arms. Obviously, the players loyal to the PGA should have some advantage. The aspect that I take issue with in this debate is the discussion of loyalty. If your coworker received an offer from a competitor in your field that exceeded what your employer is willing to pay them, I think we would expect that person to accept the higher offer and be happy for them that they improved their economic outcome. Should a person forego a higher paycheck or a perceived better situation simply because they worked somewhere else first? Now, I could agree that maybe a person should afford the opportunity for their current employer to match the offer or provide a competing offer. That may be fair but people should maximize opportunities. That is basic capitalism. And there is nothing wrong with that. But I do agree that loyalty should benefit the golfers that stayed. To the victors come the spoils. Right? Both sides are technically winners. But the live golfers are not in the position of advantage here. They may own shares in franchises that have no real value, but they now will need to have membership reinstated. I do believe that this will be good for the game of golf and I think league golf may help expand the game as well. Over time, the controversies will dwindle in importance. We know that. While the PGA could have started their own league, sometimes acquiring a solution is better than innovating one yourself. 
I am very optimistic about the game of golf going forward. This situation is kind of reminiscent of the Monday Night Wars experienced by the professional wrestling industry. Although a more competitive industry, the WWE experienced fierce competition by WCW, which competed for talent and ratings from the market leader. WWE is the clear market leader now, but not so much back then. And WCW actually took brief leadership of the ratings war. But the interesting part of this story is the response by the market leader. The PGA issued lifetime bans to defectors to live. The WWE wished the departing talent all the best. It did not rush to match contracts to a competitor that took members of its roster and ratings as well. Instead, legendary CEO Vince McMahon focused on competing on quality of product, which allowed it to rebound in the ratings never to relinquish its position. Eventually, the bloated investments taken to entice talent defections and produce a competing product that was no longer commercially viable proved too much for its owner. The lesson is that sometimes the best approach is to wait out and see if the new competitor is commercially viable, which it appears that Liv was not, if it reported no revenues. The game of golf will be stronger in the long run but there will be a period of time that will be needed to heal the wounds of division and plot a path forward where the brand can recover from the controversies and player conflicts. Money determined that the PGA Tour, Live Golf, and the DP Tour needed to end their conflict and combine. They could either spend billions fighting each other or make billions merging and providing a combined platform for the greatest golf talent in the world. The first challenge will be to alleviate distrust from players who dislike the turnabout of their leadership. Secondly, the PGA will need to resolve the antitrust reviews from the United States Department of Justice and potentially European Union agencies. And last, it will need to find a marketing campaign that can revive its brand that will take a hit in the near term. While the Saudi government does have a poor record on human rights and is accused of troubling behaviors, Americans should also consider that it has been an important partner in a region where America has few friends outside of Israel. Saudi Arabia is not perfect, but it has always stood by our interests in the region and supported our efforts to rid the world of terrorism. Let us not lose the forest through the trees. The lack of perfection is not the reason to lose a needed partner. This merger needed to happen in my opinion. Liv took too many of the game's top stars. But it was commercially unviable. But the combined entity will open up new opportunities for all sides. Money sometimes tells all sides that it is not worth fighting each other. In this case, it was better to work towards making money for golf than making money for lawyers filing motions. Something may be good for the industry, but still make you uncomfortable about the parties involved. Both sides, the PGA and Liv were not really going to be able to survive in the long term. The PGA was losing too much of the recognizable talent, while people refused to watch Live Golf it appears. So both organizations were in lose-lose situation. A merger makes sense to protect the long-term prospects of competitive golf. I do think that a league approach to golf can work in the world of golf. The most comparable sport to golf is tennis, which has team tennis. While I agree that Saudi Arabia is an imperfect but important ally to the United States, I am not sold that the PGA should be making its investment fund a premier sponsor and allowing its leader to be the chairman of the combined entity. There is a difference between a supplier located in an enemy nation and an owned entity by that nation. But in all cases I think we need to question how much influence that nation's government exerts in the operations. 
Is it surprising American CEOs are trying to make nice with the Chinese government, who probably will eventually take actions that harms the intellectual property rights of these multinationals? But I think the PGA could have done this with a more muted role for the investment fund. Even simply for public relations or optics for the combined entity. Can the players on either faction go forward without a change in leadership on the PGA? Can current players really trust the commissioner and will returning players trust him either? I am not sure the level of hypocrisy and secrecy of the situation allows any of the reported leadership to be trusted. How is a merger initiated when the CEO of one of the organizations is only notified minutes before its announcement? Was Greg Norman simply a figurehead without any actual governing responsibility? The merger is the right outcome. Just such a sloppy path to reach that outcome. Let's see if it survives scrutiny.